0: This is the Aftermarket Radio Network.
1: Welcome everyone to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow and tonight I would really like to welcome Jeff Barnes, a lead tech for Shepard Automotive. Before we get going too much here, because we do want to talk about being a lead tech and shop foreman, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Napa Auto Care. Accomplish more by starting now. That's the motto of Repair Shop of Tomorrow, a Napa Auto Care exclusively endorsed vendor. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will look at productivity, efficiencies, effective labor rate, average hours per car, labor profit percentage, measure and manage labor, and how you can create net profit. Interested in Repair Shop of Tomorrow? Call 440 440- for a free 20-minute no-obligation consultation or contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you are a lead tech right now.
0: Yes, I have been since April of 2019. Technically, I was a lead tech for the last nine years. But the foreman position, the salaried foreman position started three and a half years ago. So
1: how would you describe such a position?
0: Ownership without the full responsibility, the investment and the time.
1: I don't know if I'm quite that. I definitely have a strong voice about the going on, the day to days. I would say trying to keep everybody productive, but I also have to look at cars. And that's, it's kind of a a double-edged sword. It's not like I don't like doing it, but it also prevents me from doing the other things that I probably really should be doing to really push the business further and and really increase whatever that, you know, profit and, and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I probably take it a little too far. That's how I ended up in this position, I assume. And, you know, a lot of shows talk about what the owner should not be doing, and that's working on cars. But, you know, as as a leader, it's tough to hyper-focus on one aspect because everything is relative in this business. Everything. I mean, what the owner does, what the foreman does, what the technicians do, what the advisors do, what your shuttle driver does, person sweeping the floor, everything matters. You know, I take all of that in, um, in this position, and I'm kind of a liaison between the technicians and the rest of the shop. And I've been pushed and pulled by both ends, back and forth. And really, there's there's problems on both sides, and it just
1: gets really tough. Your colleagues, do they have a direct line to the owner? Do they just walk into the office and?
0: Yeah, they could. I've tried to tell them that before. They could do just like I do. I just go in there and we have it out because lately we've started doing meetings. That's you know part of a, a coaching program that he's, he's doing, but for the longest time, it's just whenever it boils to a head and it needs to be fixed right now. I have the time to deal with it. It's all on my mind. It's been a problem for too long and it's not the greatest way of doing things, but that's how we've been getting along for the last nine years. So these guys could all do that. They don't. They lay a lot of stuff on me and then I try and Persuade or, you know, change policy, try and get things changed. You can change all you want in a shop, but if you do not maintain it, if you do not nurture it, you know, water it, keep it going, you will fall back at, into old habits. That has been a major problem in the last three and a half years since I, I made a major shift from just diagnosing and repairing vehicles to handling employees and writing policy and procedure and trying to implement all of that and get it going.
1: What would your day-to-day look like when you say diagnosing and repairing cars? What does that really mean? And the only reason I ask is for the most part, I don't fix a lot of cars. Meaning if I diagnose a bad coil, if it's a really cakewalk one, maybe I'll put it on. But usually it gets kicked to somebody else and not, it's it's rare you're just going to slam a coil on a car it's probably getting a tune up plugs and boots and the bad coil or whatever. Like there's other things involved and the car is going to go get inspected. So it kind of leaves my world. Don't get me wrong. There's stuff that I do fix fix. I'm just curious. Cause I know a lot of lead techs. They're supposed to be the lead tech. They're supposed to be the shop foreman. They're supposed to have some managerial responsibilities. Oh, and by the way, I need you to bill 40, 50, 60 hours a week.
0: Since I stopped flat rating, When I was flat rating my last three years, I was averaging 48 hours a week. I thought that was pretty good. That's how many I was flat rating. That was not how many hours I was working. You know, I saw this as a uh, a shift that could give me more time at home, hopefully a a set schedule and uh, more time to get into more advanced technology, different vehicle brands, different repairs, things that we weren't doing that I had no time to do. So a day to day, when I first started as a salary tech, I had one good diagnostician. I had another guy that was really good at putting on parts and I had a loop tech. And so, and we were really slow at the time. I maybe diagnosed one or two cars a day and the rest of the day I was writing policy and procedure. I was fixing the shop equipment. I was doing, you know, a lot of managerial things, final inspections. That was the final step. I had to go drive the car. I had to look over, you know, what they did. And make sure it was fixed before we return it to the customer. We cut down our comeback rate by I mean, we were getting five a year. You're the QC department then, quality control. Right. And then if there were any issues, then I would take it back to the technician and say, Hey, you know, next time you need to tighten the intake boot. <laughs> it was always little things. You know, the car was always fixed. You know, it's not like they just didn't fix the car and the check engine light came back on, you know, when I drove it, something like that. Car was always fixed. It was it's always the little things that get
1: you, you know, not to make excuses or point blame, but are they all flat rate? Not anymore.
0: I changed that last October. I was having issues with a couple technicians that were, you know, because we were not consistently busy when we got slow, they would figure out ways to, you know, the typical thing, they figure out ways to get faster. And so it was like, you know, and then and then you when they're all averaging 25, 30 hours a week and one guy who used to average 50 is now averaging 30, 35 so that we can give another guy a shot it, that, you know, I I think drove him away because he was so used to a certain pay level and not that it was really going to be any less. It just wasn't for him. It wasn't desirable when you're actually paying somebody, you can require them to do certain things a certain way. You know, some guys don't like that. They've gotten used to their ways, you know, now uh, they get a base salary, and then they are uh, they get a certain amount per flat rate hour, and then after 40 hours you get a bump. After 45 hours you get a bump. You know, and so it's pretty good, and it takes away that anxiety of I'm not going to get paid. I have been very lucky here to never have experienced a 10 uh, hour week. Have you ever seen the video? of The guy spinning plates, he gets them spinning. You know, and but you got to keep going back and spin. Or they fall off. And then you got to start all over again. And I feel like since we lost the first two guys that were here when I started as a salary foreman, lead tech, the three techs that I have now are pretty green. In order to keep their hours up, I have been diagnosing all summer. It's been five to six cars a day. It's not all difficult stuff. I feel like that the easier stuff should go to them. But because it was, you know, we're inflating our hours. We're running, you know, a hundred and... 30, 140, 150 hours a week, which for this place is really good, I had to let something go. And that was a lot of the other duties that I was doing. So I was skipping doing the final inspections. I was saying, hey, you know, he should know how to do a water pump. Okay, just let it go. And then it come back with a leak from the water pump.
1: Well, you also said they're green. The mistakes are going to occur Oh yeah, part of the path. And um, without the QC, there's no way to catch it or it's at least more difficult to catch it before it gets to the client's possession.
0: I had a tech that was really good. Um like I said when I started and he did not like me QCing his his work. And I said, "Man, I am not. I am not going to make your day bad, okay? Like I am not
1: going to hold this over your head. I'm torn about it. The QCing idea. I think fundamentally it's a flawed system only because it's adding another step. It's taking time to go do something. But I understand the logic behind it because nobody's perfect. You've been working on the vehicle for a long time, maybe. You've got everything right except that one greasy fingerprint. You got all the other ones, but there's one you missed. And of course, that's the one the client sees. And they're like, I just gave you blah, 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 blah amount of money. I got fingerprints. And then it becomes plural on my vehicle. And I sympathize with both. Like, wow, I watched them wipe that thing down. I watched them try to be very meticulous and they missed it. I also understand from a consumer standpoint, I give you a lot of money. Like this, this hurt. I had to go borrow money. I had to, I had to go talk to my father-in-law for money, whatever. But then to eliminate the QC step, you have to have everything else set up properly to allow everyone to do their job as well as possible to, Mitigate the need for the QC. And I think for many, because it can be part of the process, they can have it as part of the uh, like a secondary DVI inspection after the service, an actual QC step. It's worth the hassle. It's worth having somebody just look it over quick, pick up the little stuff, like you said, top off the washer fluid, wipe off a fingerprint, you know, anything, finding the loose hose clamp before it leaves. Like, There's a lot of logic to that. Finding the
0: shop's TPMS tool in the car.
1: Right. Yeah, a scan tool interface because they're getting smaller and they're wireless and it's so easy to leave them in there. And I would say I'm kind of on the fence on it. I think perfect world, you don't need the step because everybody's working in the proper environment that they're kind of doing their own QC. But then the real world hits and it is there's a certain frenetic pace that needs to be had to turn a certain number, get a certain amount of production out the door. And once that's involved, stuff gets missed because, I mean, you watch anybody that's kind of in a hurry trying to move quickly, you miss stuff.
0: And you know what? I have them do a 10-step final inspection that's digital. We write down the final mileage, uh, take pictures of any lights they're still on, anything that we should be telling the customer. We want the level uh, of the repair and you know, service that we provide for a customer to be the same for a $10,000 repair as it is for a $100 repair. And so it is uniform and repeatable. And yeah, it takes time and we pay them for that. It's like a 90 point inspection that I wrote. So
1: mine's not quite 90. I don't think some of the stuff I have broken down separately. So it drives that number way up. So just like tires when they're inspecting tires. I have a dedicated point for not only left front or driver's front, driver's rear, etc. I also have them inspecting date codes. That's a separate step. That's a separate point. And then I have them, of course, I want them taking photos of it. I guess the same can be said for everything. Like I don't have just one step for inspect suspension. It's divided up component level. I don't have left sway bar link versus right, but I have front sway bar links and rear sway bar links. So that drives that number up. The guys, when they by end of the inspection and the, the process and that, they know what they're inspecting. So then they're not going like, okay, uh, inspect front sway bar links and then walk over and inspect them and then walk back to the tablet and green. Oh, I should take a picture. It, they check kind of everything and then uh, inspect everything and then go to the tablet and green, 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 green. I should get some photos here because I, sh- I try to get them to take photos of good stuff because you can just see people's hearts sink, especially when they're sitting in the waiting room. Of course, they get texted that inspection and it's all like red and yellow. And you can just see it deflate. But you also have a half a dozen greens and they just feel a little bit better.
0: I had started doing that about six months ago. Like, like if the battery passed the inspection, I take a picture of that. Hey, it passed, you know, your air filter is clean. Take a picture of it. Whereas I used to, it would only do the bad stuff. So I, you know, I always take pictures of tires, even if it just came from discount tire and they just want an alignment, they get pictures of their tires. You know, we were going to start doing that because we realized that there's nothing on the green. And yeah, that would make me, it's just like going to the doctor and if all they did was tell you everything's wrong with you, you know, you got high blood pressure and your kidneys aren't functioning right. But you know what? Your, your liver's okay. Your intestines are okay. Right. Yeah. They just hit you with all the bad stuff. So.
1: It's no secret we're facing a technician shortage. Napa Auto Care has a solution with the Napa Auto Care Apprentice Program. The program was engineered by one of our own. Pete McNeil and Master Technician Jake Sorensen of McNeil's Auto Care in Sandy, Utah, realized that the problem of not having technicians available for hire was not going to solve itself and decided to take action and look at a different audience of individuals available for hire. A focus was put on younger individuals with the right passion, desire, and attitude to work in the automotive repair industry. Jake and Pete sought these individuals and developed a technician apprentice program to give them the training needed to become a successful technician in today's world. The Napa Auto Care Apprentice Program includes a comprehensive nine-stage curriculum that includes a variety of types of training. Classroom training videos exclusive to the apprentice program. These videos provide an in-depth training from a successful master technician. AutoTech classes, instructor-led courses offered through Napa AutoTech, AutoTech e-learning, Web-based e-learnings designed to target specific training topics. Hands-on learning. The apprentice will apply the skills gained from the classroom training videos, AutoTech instructor-led training, and AutoTech e-learnings in the shop with the guidance of a mentor. The apprentice program curriculum is competency-based, meaning an apprentice can move through each stage at a pace that best suits them. Most apprentices complete the program within two years. Upon a completion, apprentices will have earned ASE G1. A4, A5, and AC certifications, adding industry validation to the skills an apprentice acquires. Grow your bottom line. Having an apprentice in your shop will ultimately benefit your bottom line as they advance through the program. In most cases, as the apprentice develops their skill set producing billable hours, you will begin to see a growth in your gross profit by stage five. Keep your apprentice motivated with an apprentice toolkit. One of the largest entry barriers for individuals looking to enter the automotive repair industry is the cost of tools. Napa Auto Care has worked with our supplying partners to offer an exclusive, comprehensive tool set, including a four-drawer tool cart for all registered apprentices. To learn more, members can visit member.napaautocare.com. Shops really need in a, cer- a certain um, setup, meaning number of car lines serviced, that they really need to have a person like you in the position you're in and they needed to take care of you. Of course, take care of everybody, but they need to take care of you because it enables everyone else to do better and the shop to do better.
0: I feel like it should be the technician's choice, but doing flat rate ethically, and like you've talked about before, it's not common. When I was flat rate, I maybe sometimes early on skipping the torque Part of it, you know, torquing bolts because I've been getting away with it for so long, you know, and I was not taught to go look up torque specs. And being a small engine tech before I became an automotive tech, you know, good luck finding any torque specs on anything. So you don't have an all data or or something like that. Maybe now, but back then we were using microfish. So.
1: The microfish stuff I remember, I didn't have to use very much, but what I remember, and I was pretty little yet, was for the tractors, all the tractors and the machinery. The parts catalogs were all microfish, and even the techs would come up and use the microfish to look at kind of how things went together. I'm not, I don't want to say like perfectly assembled, but they could get the gist of what was going on looking at that. I started out different than I am now. I can
0: say that I have grown in the last five years. I have grown tremendously as a technician, but I've always cared. You know, I've seen a lot of techs that just do not care and they have no place here where I'm at right now. I haven't fired anybody yet. <laughs> I really don't know if I can.
1: It might be one of the worst things to do ever. I've had people coach me up like, you know, why do you got to let them go? They don't care. They're not doing their job. And well, this should be easy. You know, you've given them plenty of chances and now you're just giving them what they want. And it is just to have this reasoning. It's like, you must fire what, five, six people a day. And they're just like, no, the first one sucked. But after that, you just, you kind of get used to it. It's like, I don't really want to get used to it.
0: If I can just go make a phone call and get five texts to interview today,
1: yeah.
0: it might make it a little <laughs> bit easier. But you still have to go through the same mess when you replace somebody. You still have to go check on them. And you, you have to make sure that, you know, their heart is in the same place that yours is. I have a good feel for that. I have a good, I don't know what you call it, a, you know, sixth sense or something, you know, on people. And so I think that's why my, you know, my boss put me in charge of that because he likes people right off the bat. He will find the best things about that person and he will get over the rest and that's a good way to live. Um, that's a good way to be an optimist. That's a good way to welcome more people into your life. But when you're trying to do this and you're working on people's freedom, you know, that's their car. That's their freedom.
1: Like my area has essentially four walls. Others, their work areas are very similar, maybe slightly larger or maybe smaller. But for the most part, there's times where you can be somewhat independent. Therefore, if they do their job really well, you can look past a lot of stuff. I could definitely see where it's one of those situations where everybody's kind of working next to each other all in like the one big shop, if you will, where all the hoists are lined up and you're all kind of in that same area. And then everybody's kind of got their own radio, maybe not blaring, but playing and just grating on each other. I could see like even if they're all extremely good at their jobs, they just wouldn't be able to handle it
0: but what about their personal lives? Morality, responsibility, you know, things that don't pertain to being a technician. Could you still, could you still have someone working for you? And I'm not talking about past, you know, we've had a lot of guys with some very colorful pasts that we do not care about. That is not our business. That is their business.
1: Yeah. It's regardless, it was the path that led them to where they're at now. And
0: Having someone who is good at their job, but who is, you know, hey, I need to take this day off and they're out cheating on their spouse. We've had some people who were buying and selling things illegally on the internet.
1: My first thought is it's pretty wild that they have such duality, that they could be home doing something illegal or immoral and yet at the shop have the totally acceptable levels of whatever that is, responsibility and and quality and care and all that. That's pretty wild to me if they can do that. Illegal stuff, I probably have very little time for. Immoral stuff, you know, if it's going to end up where it's going to look poorly on the business, I have to take issue with that. Generally, it's like your private life's your private life. You know, my right and wrong and your right and wrong might not quite line up, but there are certain things I think generally accepted as being immoral. And therefore, if it looks poorly on the business, I don't know how you can stay. I just don't know how that would work. And that can expand out to a lot of different things. You know, when you start pushing things out to extremes, whichever direction that is, it gets rough. You're going to be spending more time with these people than you do your own family. You kind of want to get along with everyone. And that's give and take. If you're the one that swears like a sailor and you got somebody that you work next to that really doesn't and it kind of doesn't sit well with them, there's going to be some give and take. I will back down. I will try not to let loose with the obscene language as much and the other person is going to be like, okay, I'm going to try not to get so wound up about it too. If you drop a F bomb here and there, you know what I mean? Like, there should be a good give and take, a little bit. And then, you know, again, they start pushing out to extremes. There has to be lines. It just has to be like, we all represent this business, this entity together. So that means how we behave outside these walls sometimes. Uh, and maybe not even sometimes, maybe all the time reflects on the business and coworkers. kind of have to watch it a little bit. Like I think everybody's had that one employee that pushed you to your limits. Like you've lost sleep about it and it isn't even their performance eight to five at the shop. It's outside of that. And you have to wrestle with that. Like how important
0: is it? And what can you let go?
1: Right. For the better of the business. Yeah, Yeah. What am I willing to look the other way about? And what am I not?
0: That's where, what do you consider? And everybody has that question. What do you consider a good tech? You know, and so some shops, it's just the tech that's here. The one who is present, he's the best we got.
1: I know production can get into a weird conversation because there's certain people that bring different things to the table that others don't. You may have somebody that doesn't produce near the hours the other techs are doing, but they do all the stuff nobody else wants to do that just ugly work. They're the ones that do it and they don't complain and they do it reasonably fast. My favorite reference is the uh, the sunroof and the jaguar. You know, nobody wants to do it. They do it. They do a really nice job of it. You can stand behind it. Maybe they didn't, you know, destroy flat rate time on it, but they definitely bring stuff to the table.
0: With building the team that I have now, I had to convince the boss to let go of some of the productivity so that we could build a team that you know that was an all-around quality i think you can train a tech up you could send them the training you could teach them you could get them to get their certifications and to become a better technician what's tough is training in their soul in their heart you know their dedication their responsibility that part of it is really difficult to train and so You know, the guys that we have hired, one's maybe in his late 20s, um, and he had three years uh, before here at a dealership. The other technician worked at, you know, a parts house and went to school for aircraft sheet metal and decided he didn't want to do that. He liked cars more. And then, you know, the, the latest one I have now is actually someone I tried to hire two years ago, and his parents said, well, that job does not have benefits. You need benefits. Um, and so he went to work for actually the city that I live in he went to work for them. They had already dead ended his career. They basically told him there's a right way, there's a wrong way, and there's the city way. We just do things a certain way and we don't care if you want to do them a different way. This is how we do it. He's got a double master certification because he had to get the regular certification like what we have. And then he's got the medium heavy duty stuff too. So he has a total of 16 or 17 ASEs. So technically he has more ASE certifications than I do, but he's got a lot of certifications. That does not mean, and and I knew this going in, that does not mean he is a jack of all trades. He can do everything. I knew that going in because I could just look at his experience and I ask him, what are you doing for the city? And he said, tires, brakes, oil changes. And if the you know, dump trucks get a flat or, you know, the hydraulics break on the beds at the dump. Then I go out there and I'm the one to get that truck and get it rolling again and just get it back to the shop so someone else can fix it. You know, I asked him about, you know, what kind of uh, diagnostics did you guys do? And he was like, if you couldn't scan it with an OTC and put a part on, if that didn't fix it, it went to the dealership. Now I'm looking at how much I'm paying in taxes to the city and how many technicians they have, which are, mostly inept by this point. They can't leave. I think that's part of the reason why they do that. So they know they can't leave. They can't. I mean, it's, they would have to take a cut and pay. If someone did their homework on what kind of repairs and, and, you know, diagnosing they were doing over there, they can't make it, you know, in the real world. He came to me after two years working for them and said, you know, he was making good money and had good benefits, but he said, you know what? He said, i want to learn. I want to do more. He was like, I'm doing nothing. And until somebody quits or retires, there's nothing for me here. And so his first day working for us, we went to Vision. I could have put him in a lube tech position uh, and made him do his one year as a lube tech or two years or whatever. But I said, you know what, we're going to start out with that for a month, and then we're going right into it. You're going to start diagnosing. You're going to start doing... You know repairs, things that he's never done. Um, he worked for Honda and Volkswagen, and was a, a loop tech basically for them. And of course, at the city they had Chevys because the person who ran the repair department was the one who got to pick which vehicles they purchased, and he liked Chevys, so he would not allow them to have any hybrids. But you know, I have to have a, a certain level of trust with him, even knowing that he is not you know, as well-trained and experienced as my other two guys, I just have to let him do it. I have to let him fail. Been here since March. Um, It was probably June or July. I watched him do a timing cover gasket and oil pan gasket on a Chevy Cruze with the the little 1.4 turbo. Mm -hmm. And I watched him not put antifreeze back in it. And I sat there on my stool and waited for him to call me. Because he made it about three miles down the road and blew the head gasket.
1: So my employer, my boss, just kind of saying like if he didn't have the shop to come to, he wouldn't even know what to do. And you know, I'm thinking like, well, that doesn't align so well with this goal of uh, selling it to me. But anyways, he, he's saying like, you know, I feel this role, though, that you guys come and ask me questions. And, you know, the guys in the back, and I'm like, well. Part of that is is if there's someone there to ask questions, they're going to because it does two things. One, they don't have to think. Two, it shifts responsibility a little bit. Whatever advice you give me, if I follow that, if it doesn't work, it's not my fault anymore. It's your fault. And like you're saying, sometimes the struggle bus is a better long-term investment. You're going to learn how that didn't work. It's much easier to remember Last time I did that, that didn't work out so hot for me. So I'm not going to do that again. Versus so and so told me last time, don't do this or do it this way. That's it's a lot harder to recall. Wasn't trying to like run him in the ground or put him in his place or anything like that. It wasn't really, I didn't have any intent of degrading, but there's a lot of psychology behind that. That if you know someone's there to ask, you might do it right away. Almost like the diagnostic database. If you know it's there, you're going to go there before you're going to try to figure it out on your own. And depending on pay systems, you might be rewarded to do so. That has a long-term net negative effect on overall capability. If you're constantly relying on the database, because now you're relying on almost an atrophied skill set to figure it out on your own. It's fundamentally bad. And I'm not trying to just say like do away with this database. Sometimes there are things you are not going to find on your own. That's just the way it is. And it's not like you're so stupid. There's some pretty jacked up problems out there that somebody very, very smart or very, very lucky found. And you're going to take your crack at figuring it out and you're not going to make any headway. You break down and you go to the database and, oh, okay. I was going way the wrong direction or I'd never figured that out. There's no way anyone would have figured that out. We use
0: those. That is actually, I built a uh, nine or 10 step diagnostic process or diagnostic checklist for us to follow because it's always, we miss first off visual inspection that I would say 10% of the time you find it rat's nest. Do you want to be driving around in a car that might catch fire because there's a fuel leak on the engine? Do you want to be that person to burn that car down? I don't care if the customer wants to do that, fine. I've got that on there. Uh, You know, step two is verify the concern. If you can't get past step two, why are you going any further? I mean, you can, and sometimes I will go, you know, if I can't verify, I will go look, you know, at the next step, which is check for TSBs and recalls. And then it's check the database. Because people in the database may have missed the TSB or the recall, or maybe it's newer than the information that is on Identifix. Maybe it just came out. You know, maybe you are working on a 2019 or 2020 and they just released the TSB and everybody was replacing this part. That's not a, a long-term repair. It's replaced this part and update you know, the PCM or something. So, you know, I do read a little further sometimes. But yeah, if I can't get past step two, it is go talk to the advisors and say, hey, can you call the customer? Can they come by? You know, did you ride with them to hear this noise? Did you ask them if, it, if it's when the last time it was that it did this? You know, did it do, just do it one time? You know, did it just make this noise one time? Did it just misfire one time? I have this, this set up. The step of getting me involved is step seven. So they better have looked up all the wiring diagrams and have that open on their computer screen. They better have looked up all the TSBs and the recalls. They better have verified the concern. Don't come get me to verify your concern. It's something that has taken a lot of headbutting to get in, you know, because they do. They want to make money. They want to get faster. We do need the cars diagnosed faster. But when I have my own five or six cars to diagnose for the day, and it takes me because at that point I do the inspection. So I've been for the last year doing five to six diagnoses with a 80 point 90 point inspection and writing the entire ticket and adding all the labor and then they still are going to break bolts or not be able to figure out how to put this you know get this timing belt just right in time or need help setting up you know what fittings do i need to use for this machine you know those types of things are still going to happen so when they come get me you better have all that stuff ready for me to go. And if I come back there and just read the TSB, which is something they could have done on their own, I'm not happy. I'm not that I'm going to give them crap over. I'm just like, here it is. It's right here. You know. When I first started doing this, they're like, whoa. You know, I didn't. <laughs> You're good. You know. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I'm not. You know. I would say 75 percent of the time, you know, the things that I repair, I just found online on a database or found a TSB or a recall and then I just went and verified that that was the actual problem I'm not working magic you know sometimes I do but a lot of times it is you know it's right there and so my thing is with them is I'm going why can't you do this you know don't you know dead end your career and become a parts changer
1: you know that remark there that comment is trademarked and now I have to write a check to Paul Danner for what don't be a parts changer things a lot (laughs) <laughs> Checks in the mail, Paul. Don't worry. Oh, I'm paying them too.
0: Our process is repeatable and that it's important. And, and, you know, for years I would, I didn't have it. I didn't have a process and I would get my tail kicked and being here in the last nine years, I haven't had a lead tech. I, it was me. Why well, was not on the Facebook groups? I mean, I've seen your name before on IATN <laughs> back in the day, but I didn't have all this, this network of, of people. And, and to be honest, when I took this position, this was the end of the road for me, really. If this didn't work out, it was like, I'm getting up, you know, not up at age, but I'm in my mid-30s, you know, and I might have to go do something else. So, you know, I took this position and then, you know, I met Keith at a CTI class.
1: He's talking about Keith Perkins, Perkins. of L1 Automotive Training. I went to
0: Vision three years ago for the first I didn't even know there was such a thing. And you know what's crazy is the place that I worked at before, I'm sure he knew. He got all the magazines. He was involved in twenty groups. It was never even offered. When I was on the process of you know, I actually did a six month stint over there when I was tired of flat rating here. He had lost his it's actually my father in law's shop. He had lost his lead tech. And so I went and did a six month stint over there and it didn't, you know, we can't work together. So When I was coming back, the technician that was here, my boss now, told me, hey, he's at Vision. I'm going, Vision? What is Vision? And he's like, oh, it's a training seminar. And I'm going, what? But, you know, if I had not found the groups that I'm in now and the support, you know, even from you at times, um, I don't think that I would be doing this anymore because it is so much work. I got this bump on my head here from fixing a PV, you know, a broken PVC pipe uh, Tuesday night. And as much as I don't want to wallow around in mud underneath someone's house, you know, I'm like, those guys make pretty good money for gluing pipes, you know, not to say anything bad about their job, but I can go to Lowe's or Home Depot, get help with that, buy a book for $25 and the parts are pretty much universal. You can go buy the tools to be an electrician there. You can buy all the parts to be an electrician and to do electrical work. And it is the same. It's uniform. It doesn't matter the brand of light fixture you bought. It's going to have a black and a white wire and a green wire on it. And it's just not that way in our industry. And it's gotten so difficult. You know, used to, I had a snap-on brick and very rarely did I have to take it out. It just seemed like so much easier to just throw a meter on something and go, that sensor is reading wrong. Frontal position sensor is not supposed to be reading five volts. Instead, now I have to get a scan tool. Well, that one doesn't talk to this car. So I have to have a, another scan tool. I got to pay a subscription to use it. And then I got to figure out how to get past the gateway module. And then I've got to go through 400 data pids to find the throttle position sensor data pit. And I'm like, I could have had a meter on this car and been done getting to this point in my career. You know, even just lately, I've had a conversation with the boss and, and I'm going, I don't know. I don't know if this is it. I don't think I'm the only one thinking that I think even some of the big you know names have thought the same thing,
1: some of that stuff, like the other trades because of the uniformity of things, like there's just not that many different variations that it's a little easier to code if that's the right word or regulate auto repair is just there's so many systems and subsystems and differences between car manufacturers and even platform within the same car line. It gets really difficult to just have a really overarching regulation that people could follow. And, you know, we have map guidelines, we got the OE specs, but to have like a large governing body just say, this is the right way to do this. You have that in most of the other skilled trades. It may not be nationwide, but it's certainly at the county level you know, state level. This is the way this has to be. This pipe has to be six inches from this. This fastener has to be within twelve inches of this joint. There's no end indicer- butts about it.
0: Do you think that's the reason why people tend to not do those style of repairs themselves versus work on their own car? Because to me I can go do, now I won't mess with, you know, phase, you know, three phase or something like that, but I could definitely find a YouTube video on it and do it. Do they deem that as that's going to be dangerous? You know, is that, is that the future of our industry is that people will see things as too dangerous to touch and will then say, I can't do it. I'm just going to have to take it in. I don't know. There's enough out there that not only does it enable the people, it enables the text too.
1: I think worldwide. Americans work on their own stuff more than any other, most other countries. It's not common for many other people in other countries to paint a room. They hire a painter. I shouldn't say most, but a lot. I'd say most. Run down to the Home Depot and they get a roller and some paint and they have at it. They watch uh, this old house and away they go. We have so
0: much ownership in things
1: over here. We take pride in what we have, you know, Yep, we have a choice too. I think there's certain mythology with um, electricity. You know, one ten stings, one twenty stings. I suppose it could kill you. So they might look at that as it's just the risk versus reward, isn't there? And I think cars just have that place in our collective mind as not being as complex or um, value, and of course monetarily, but is held in as high regard as a building or a house. People don't want to mess something up in their house because lower the value of the house or it turns into a really expensive problem. If I'm going to do the plumbing in my house and I screw up, it's a big, big mess. Potentially. Uh, Electricity. Somebody could get hurt or could burn the house down. Uh, They don't look at the same risk as their cars. And plus, it's just, I think, constantly reading about... If you go to the mechanic, you're going to get shafted. He's going to charge you, he or she is going to charge you hundreds of dollars for something that if for $50, you could do it yourself and it takes five minutes. If you go searching, there's absolutely those videos. Don't hire a plumber to put in your water heater. You could do it. People won't do it. <laughs> but you have to kind of go searching. They're not in every magazine. It's not in the, uh, a bunch of magazines. It's not coming up on high up on searches. Stuff like that. So, and you know, I don't know how many car parts stores are there versus home. You got your Home Depot's and you got Lowe's and you got Menards, and I don't know names of many others after that. So, you might have three of those lumber yards or home improvement centers. How many car parts stores are there? I mean, dozens. A lot of the parts stores around us, they won't even touch your car necessarily. Like, if you want to test your battery, they'll walk out there and tell you how to hook it up and what buttons to push, but they won't do it. Or if you want to do a code scan, here's the scanner. That's where you plug it in. You write down the codes and then hand me the scanner back because I'm out. And it's like, oh, it's got a O2 sensor code. It could be the O2 sensor. Oh, sell me one of those. But they won't be out there looking at the codes going like, oh, it needs new jar valve and it needs an O2 sensor. And I don't know about other places in the country. It seems like something kind of happened where... You can't be a part store offering auto service. Like, I've done some wiring in my house, not a lot. I don't want, I'm not trying to like brag about it. It's been minimal. Some plumbing. I want to do some more. I got this idea of what I want to do with some manifolds. Yep. I want to do the same thing. But the stuff I've done when the plumbers have stopped in to look at stuff for uh, stuff that I'm not going to do, I'm not going to be chiseling out concrete. They'll be like, oh, well, who did that? And I'll be like, I did. Is it that bad? No, no, that's really, really good. It's like, really? Is it me, code? Yeah. yeah." (laughs) I didn't do it because I read a manual or I know code. It's just that this makes sense. I remember a time
0: working at the lawnmower shop and I had a customer who I knew was a surgeon. Yeah, we sell him equipment. This dude was trimming his own trees. You know, he was trying to take care of his own thing. And I admire that, you know, that's how I am. I want to do it all. I really don't want to hire it out. You know, I, I wanna be the one who who sits back at the end of the day and crosses my arms in the in the backyard and say, I did this, you know? And he was up there buying a chainsaw, a big one, a face shield which no one ever bought, and the special pants.
1: Don't tell me the model, just tell me what color chainsaw or white white and orange. So he's buying a six sixty?
0: Oh yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, he was buying a, a thirty six inch or forty two inch bar or something like that, you know. And he was going to do the work himself. And one of our other customers was a uh, an arborist and was standing right next to him. And he's looking at me and he he looks at this guy he goes, hi, you know, my name is so-and-so and I'm this arborist company. Can I ask you what you do for a living? And he's like, well, I'm a surgeon. He said, yeah, I could tell that by your hands. He said, why don't you let me do this? He said, if you hurt your hands, what are you going to do? you going to come trim trees with me? And that guy looked at him and turned pale white because I don't think he thought about that. For us, as as good as we are here at this shop and as good of reviews as we have, how do they maintain themselves? If you Google a plumber, you have just as many choices as you do an auto tech
1: around you. To me, the biggest difference is that generally what they're working on, what they're repairing, the building, the house is worth more than a vehicle and they don't depreciate. A big hurdle for us is even if we're pulling in a $50,000 vehicle, that was the the sticker, 50,000. When they drove it off the lot, it lost, you know, whatever, 10-15%. They probably can't drive it out into the street around the block back in and say, "Hey, you know what? I want to sell it back to you." They're going to take a big hit. And and so it just continues to depreciate, and then within a few years that $50,000 vehicle is now really valued at 20,000. I have a 2005 Escape with
0: 240,000 miles on it. And I value that vehicle more right now than any car I've ever had a loan on. I do. That is my baby because it is paid off.
1: <laughs> Where I'm going with that is it, it seems like there's a, a certain threshold. And that threshold lately has changed. Post-COVID, that threshold has moved quite a bit. But there seemed to be a threshold of if I have to spend... More than say 20% of the value of this vehicle, I'm starting to have problems. I'm starting to be like, eh, maybe I want to just trade this thing in. Same with like a house. You know, if the house is worth 200,000, if it's going to cost 30,000, 40,000 to do a big repair, it's like it is what it is. Plus, the value of the house is going to either maintain or increase. Vehicle is different. I can sink this vehicle's worth you know 20,000 and I'm going to sink 4,000 into it which is pretty easy to do I probably should change that but still 4,000 you get hesitant like oh that's a lot of the value of this thing and after I do the work it's not like the car is going to be worth $25,000 mm-hmm. at least the vast majority of vehicles I think that weighs on them and it, it hurts us too and I'm not saying it's right I think a lot of it is that discussion at the front counter and a, just a collective logic of the motoring public of thinking about their vehicles more as machines than cars. That these machines, these tools that allow me to get back and forth to work, back and forth to the grocery store, get the kids to school. This is a tool. This this has a return on investment. I don't see it like a business owner does because I needed to do my job. And you know, there's a return on investment for me hauling my skid loader over to this job. You know, it's not a question of how much to fix this thing. It's when will it be done? Because now I'm backlogged. They could take some of that same mentality and apply it to the family vehicle because it does the same, it has a return on investment. You're just not calculating it the same way. And therefore, it takes some of this value thing. And if anything, at least modifies it a little more where this $4,000 investment is much more palatable. A lot of it, people are okaying this work because either they do have the money or the alternatives aren't there. I can't go trade it in. There's nothing to trade it in on. So that's stuff that I don't know that we as a collective do such a great job. I think
0: you know a lot has been talked
1: about finding your customers
0: as difficult as it is because you do have to take customers you don't want, customers that aren't going to come back, customers that aren't going to appreciate you And you're going to weed through so many people to get one and then hope that, you know, that they don't sell their car. You know, and this is crazy. Um, This year, we did a $20,000 ticket on a 2004 Silverado that had over 200,000 miles on it.
1: For just the engine or engine transmission or? He said he hadn't hardly ever had to do anything to this truck. You know, maybe a
0: radiator and alternator or something like that. He wanted us to reseal the motor. It was leaking. He wanted us to reseal the transmission and the rear differential. He wanted factory Bilstein shocks. He wanted a factory alternator. He wanted a factory water pump, which you can't. We're trying to tell him you really can't. You can get AC Delco stuff. Have you seen the AC Delco gold line? It's not AC Delco. Be careful. been getting burned by that. But he wanted all this stuff done. He wanted the dents pushed out. We That was a separate ticket. Um, we had a paintless dent repair guy come do that. We had the truck detailed. I mean, this truck still smelled new. I get it. And he said, you know what? He said, I don't want to spend $75,000 on a new truck. I don't want a backup camera. I don't want it to stop on its own. He's like, I just want another one of these, and they don't make them. I'm fixing this one. I pencil whipped this thing. Everything I could find, and that was what I was told to do. You find everything wrong with it that you can. And I did. And when I saw him approve everything, I was like, you better call him and make sure <laughs> before we start on this that he didn't accidentally hit approve all, you know, and he called and said, I have cash and when will it be done? And it's like, okay, well, start ordering stuff because we're we're going to get a, a week's worth of pay off of one vehicle now. And that's not the only one. We did head gaskets on a 2003 Xterra to the tune of like a few other things. It was a $7,600 ticket. And I'm going, you know, and I call him, make sure. And he said, listen, this is my kid's car. It's just a pain in the neck to go find another $5,000 car. And then I'm not going to have any warranty on just like I did on this one. And the head gasket's blue. And you guys are telling me that you're going to give me a warranty on this. And this is going to be a decent car for the next, you know, three years while he's in high school. As hard as it is to say it, just fix it.
1: But like you say, what's the alternative? The alternative is more yet, a lot more.
0: Yeah. And you may, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, fix your 08 Civic. And they're like, no, I'll just go buy a new one. I'm like, you don't understand the problems you're going to have with that one because your car's already been through all of the stupid repairs that it's going to need. All the weird, quirky things that the dealership fixed under warranty. It's already been through all that. You know, you're just going to have regular maintenance and repairs that are going to happen. You know, there's no more updates for your car. You buy a new car, there's updates for everything, and you're at their mercy. However long it takes them to do something, what we consider as simple as pushing a button, you're stuck with them for, what, three, five years, you know, if you if you have a vehicle under warranty. And I know some dealership techs, and they say that they do as little as possible to get the car out of the warranty period, and then it's your problem. And even if the technician has a problem with that, they will not approve The correct repair. This is what we're doing. This will make it last another 10,000 miles until it's out of the warranty period, and it's their problem. Value is everything that that vehicle does. You know, everything, like you said, everything that you can do with it. Like mine, uh, most people probably would pay three thousand dollars for it. But if the transmission goes out on it, I will spend forty-five hundred dollars on a transmission on that vehicle because that's the vehicle that I want, and and that's what I want to drive. And you've got an uphill battle right now. You hear all these car commercials all the time, and it's almost predatory, just constant. Have you seen the new Volkswagen Atlas commercial where the dude walks out in front of the car and it stops automatically, and then they say, uh, front assist, standard now. You know, I'm going, I wonder how many people are going to try that out.
1: Scott Brown's been doing the tests in his parking lot with a, uh, I think it's like a inflatable clown, pedestrian detection s- systems and uh, automatic emergency braking. I don't know if they've been updated there. I think they're a few years old now, a couple years old. But the um, it's like the Insurance Institute was doing tests on that and uh, how pathetic they were <laughs> early on. But they're getting to be pretty darn good. I think the Subarus with the um, EyeSight being binocular does particularly well for that. But man, I just looked at the time. We've been talking for uh, quite a while. You we, game we for a part two sometime? Yeah, absolutely. I've got a whole other
0: list of, you know, how to uh, incentivize the text to learn more and, and incentivize diagnosticians. I have a theory on that, on how to organically grow more diagnosticians without pushing them.
1: That sounds like a great part too. I really, really can thank you enough for your time, sir. Absolutely. This is awesome. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you got some good points out of this. Thank you again to Jeff for spending the time with us. Thank you to Napa Auto Care for sponsoring and thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network for really making this all possible. So until next time, everybody take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow, diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network.
0: Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.